Section 46 of Elia and the Last Essays of Elia. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Arden. Elia and the Last Essays of Elia by Charles Lamb. Newspapers 35 years ago. Dan Stewart once told us that he did not remember that he ever deliberately walked into the exhibition at Somerset House in his life. He might occasionally have escorted a party of ladies across the way that were going in, but he never went in of his own head. Yet the office of the Morning Post newspaper stood then just where it does now. We are carrying you back, reader, some thirty years or more, with its gilt globe top front facing that emporium of our artist's grand annual exposure. We sometimes wish that we had observed the same abstinence with Daniel. A word or two of D.S. He ever appeared to us one of the finest tempered of editors. Perry, of the Morning Chronicle, was equally pleasant, with a dash, no sly one either, of the courtier. S. was frank, plain, and English all over. We have worked for both these gentlemen. It is soothing to contemplate the head of the Ganges, to trace the first little bubblings of a mighty river with holy reverence to approach the rocks, once glad the stream's renowned and ancient song. Fired with a perusal of the Abyssinian pilgrim's exploratory ramblings after the cradle of the infant Nihilist, we well remember on one fine summer holiday, a whole day's leave, we called it at Christ's Hospital, sallying forth at rise of sun, not very well provisioned either for such an undertaking, to trace the current of the new river, Middletonian stream, to its scaturient source, as we had read Meadows by Fair Amwell. Gallantly did we commence our solitary quest, for it was essential to the dignity of a discovery that no eye of schoolboy, save our own, should beam on the detection. By flowery spots and verdant lanes, skirting Hornsey Hope trained us on in many a baffling turn, menless, hopeless meanders, as it seemed or as if the jealous waters had dodged us, reluctant to have the humble spot of their nativity revealed, till spent and nigh famished, before set of the same sun, we sate down somewhere by Bow's farm, near Tottenham, with the tithe of our proposed labors only yet accomplished, sorely convinced in spirit that that Brucian enterprise was as yet too arduous for our young shoulders. Not more refreshing to the thirsty curiosity of the traveller, is the tracing of some mighty waters up to their shallow fontlet than it is to a pleased and candid reader to go back to the inexperienced essays, the first callow flights in authorship of some established name in literature, from the net which preluded to the Aeneid to the duck which Samuel Johnson trod on. In those days, every morning paper, as an essential retainer to its establishment, kept an author who was bound to furnish daily a quantum of witty paragraphs, sixpence a joke. And it was thought pretty high, too, was Dan Stewart's settled remuneration in these cases. The chatter of the day, scandal, but above all, dress, furnished the material. The length of no paragraph was to exceed seven lines. Shorter they might be, but they must be pointed. The fashion of flesh, or rather pink-colored hose for the ladies, luckily coming up at the juncture, when we were on our probation for the place of chief gesture to S.'s paper, established our reputation in that line. We were pronounced a capital hand. Oh, the conceits which we varied upon red and all its prismatic differences, from the trite and obvious flower of Cytherea 
to the flaming costume of the lady that was her sitting upon many waters. Then there was the collateral topic of angles, but an occasion to a truly chaste rider, like herself, of touching that nice brink, and yet never tumbling over it, of a seemingly ever approximating something not quite proper, while like a skillful posture master, balancing betwixt decorums and their opposites, he keeps the line from which a hair's breadth deviation is destruction, hovering in the confines of light and darkness, or where both seem either, a hazy uncertain delicacy, autologous-like in the play, still putting off his expectant auditory with whoop, do me no harm, good man. But above all, that conceit, a rider does most at that time. Mansell tickles our midriff to remember, where elusively to the flight of Astraea, Ultima calestum terras reliquit, we pronounced, in reference to the stocking still, that modesty taking her final leave of mortals, her last blush was visible in her ascent to the heavens by the tract of the glowing instep. This might be called the crowning conceit, and was esteemed tolerable writing in those days. But the fashion of jokes, with all other things, passes away, as did the transient mode which had so favored us. The angles of our fair friend in a few weeks began to reassume their whiteness, and left us scarce a leg to stand upon. Other female whims followed, but none, methought so pregnant, so invitatory of shrewd conceits, and more than single meanings. Somebody has said that to swallow six cross-buns daily, consecutively, for a fortnight, would surfeit the stoutest digestion. But to have to furnish as many jokes daily, and that not for a fortnight, but for a long twelve-month, as we were constrained to do, was a little harder execution. Man goeth forth to his work until the evening, from a reasonable hour in the morning, we presume it was met. Now, as our main occupation took us up from eight till five every day in the city, and as our evening hours at that time of life had generally to do with anything rather than business, it follows that the only time we could spare for this manufactory of jokes, our supplementary livelihood, that supplied us in every want beyond mere bread and cheese, was exactly that part of the day, which, as we have heard of no man's land, it may be fitly denominated no man's time. That is, no time in which a man ought to be up and awake. In. To speak more plainly, it is that time of an hour, or an hour and a half's duration, in which a man, whose occasions call him up so preposterously, has to wait for his breakfast. Oh, those headaches at dawn of day, when at five or half past five in summer, and not much later in the dark seasons, we were compelled to rise having been, perhaps not above four hours in bed, for we were no go-to-beds with the lamp, though we anticipated the lark off times in her rising. We liked the parting cup at midnight, as all young men did before these effeminate times, and to have our friends about us. We were not consolated under Aquarius, that watery sign, and therefore incapable of Bacchus, cold, washy, bloodless. We were none of your Brazilian water-sponges, nor taking our degrees at Mount Ague. We were right toping Capulets, jolly companions, we and they. But to have to get up, as we said before, curtailed of half our fair sleep, fasting, with only a dim vista of refreshing bohe in the distance, to be necessitated to rouse ourselves at the detestable rap of an old hag of a domestic, who seemed to take a diabolical pleasure in her announcement, 
that it was time to rise, and whose chappy knuckles we have often yearned to amputate, and string them up at our chamber door, to be a terror to all such unseasonable breastbreakers in future. Facho and sweet as Virgil sings, had been the descending of the overnight, balmy the first sinking of the heavy head upon the pillow, but to get up, as he goes on to say, revocari gratis, super asque evader ad ares, and to get up, moreover, to make jokes with malice perpended, there was the labor, then the work. No Egyptian taskmaster ever devised a slavery like to that, our slavery. No fractious operants ever turned out for half the tyranny, which this necessity exercised upon us. Half a dozen jests in a day, baiting Sundays too. Why, seems nothing. We make twice the number every day in our lives as a matter of course, and claim no sabbatical exemptions, but then they come into our head. But when the head has to go out to them, when the mountain must go to Mohammed, reader, try every once, only for one short twelfth month. It was not every week that a fashion of pink stockings came up, but mostly instead of it, some rugged, untractable subject, some topic impossible to be contorted into the risible, some future upon which no smile could play, some flint from which no process of ingenuity could procure a distillation. There they lay. There your appointed tale of brick-making was set before you, which you must finish with or without straw, as it happened. The craving dragon, the public, like him in Bell's temple, must be fed. It expected its daily rations, and Daniel and ourselves to do us justice. Did the best we could on this side bursting him. While we were wringing our coy sprightlinesses for the post, and writhing under the toil of what is called easy writing, Bob Allen, our quantum schoolfellow, was tapping his impracticable brains in like in a like service for the oracle. Not that Robert troubled himself much about wit. If his paragraphs had a sprightly air about them, it was sufficient. He carried this nonchalance so far at last that a matter of intelligence, and that no very important one, was not seldom palmed upon his employees for a good jest. For example's sake, walking yesterday morning casually down Snow Hill, who should we meet but Mr. Deputy Humphreys? We rejoice to add that the worthy deputy appeared to enjoy a good state of health. We do not remember ever to have seen him look better. This gentleman, so surprisingly met upon Snow Hill, from some peculiarities and gait or gesture, was a constant butt for mirth to the small paragraph mongers of the day, and our friend thought that he might have his fling at him with the rest. We met A in Holborn shortly after this extraordinary rencounter, but she told with tears of satisfaction in his eyes, and chuckling at the anticipated effects of its announcement next day in the paper. We did not quite comprehend where the wit of it lay at the time, nor was it easy to be detected when the thing came out, advantage by type and letterpress. He had better have met anything that morning than a common councilman. His services were shortly after dispensed with, while the plea that his paragraphs of late had been deficient in point. The one in question, it must be owned, had an air, in the opening especially, proper to awaken curiosity. And the sentiment, or moral, wears the aspect of humanity, and good neighborly feeling. But somehow, the conclusion was not judged altogether to enter to the magnificent promise of the premises. We traced our friend's pen afterwards in the true Breton, the star, the traveler, from all which he was successively dismissed. 
the proprietors having no further occasion for his services. Nothing was easier than to detect him. When wit failed, our topics ran low, there constantly appeared the following. It is not generally known that the three blue balls at the pawnbroker's shops are the ancient arms of Lombardy. The Lombards were the first money brokers in Europe. Bob has done more to set the public right on this important point of blazonry than the whole College of Heralds. The appointment of a regular wit has long ceased to be a part of the economy of a morning paper. Editors find their own jokes, or do as well without them. Parson asked, and Topham brought up the set custom of witty paragraphs, first in the world. Bowden was a reigning paragraphist in his day, and succeeded poor Allen in the Oracle. But as we said, the fashion of jokes passes away, and it would be difficult to discover, in the biographer of Mrs. Siddons, any traces of that vivacity and fancy which charmed the whole town at the commencement of the present century. Even the prelusive delicacies of the present writer, the curt Australian illusion, would be thought pedantic and out of date in these days. From the office of the Morning Post, where we may as well exhaust our newspaper reminiscences at once by change of property in the paper, we were transferred mortifying exchange to the office of the Albion newspaper, late Rackstrow's Museum in Fleet Street. What a transition from a handsome apartment, from rosewood desks and silver instands to an office. No office, but a den rather, but just redeemed from the occupation of dead monsters, of which it seemed redolent from the center of loyalty and fashion to a focus of vulgarity and sedition here in murky closet inadequate from its square contents to the receipt of the two bodies of editor and humble paragraph maker together at one time sat in the discharge of his new editorial functions the bigod of elia the redoubted john fenwick f without a guinea in his pocket and having left not many in the pockets of his friends whom he might command, had purchased, on ticked doubtless, the whole and sole editorship, proprietorship, with all the rights and titles, such as they were worth, of the Albion, from one Lavelle, of whom we know nothing, save that he had stood in the pillory for a libel on the Prince of Wales, with this hopeless concern, for it had been sinking ever since its commencement, and could now reckon upon not more than a hundred subscribers. F. resolutely determined upon pulling down the government in the first instance, and making both our fortunes by way of corollary. For seven weeks and more did this infatuated Democrat go about borrowing seven shilling pieces and lesser coin to meet the daily demands of the stamp office, which allowed no credit to publications of that side in politics. An outcast from polite bread, we attached our small talents to the forlorn fortunes of our friend. Our occupation now was to write treason, recollections of feelings, which were all now that remained from our first boyish heats kindled by the French Revolution, when if we were misled, we erred in the company of some, who are accounted very good men now, rather than any tendency at this time to Republican doctrines, assisted us in assuming a style of writing, while the paper lasted, consonant in no very undertone to the right earnest fanaticism of F., our cue was now to insinuate, rather than recommend, possible abdications. Blocks, axes, Whitehall tribunals were covered with flowers of so cunning a paraphrasis. As Mr. Bayes says, never naming the thing directly, that the keen eye of an attorney general was insufficient to detect the lurking snake among them. 
There were times, indeed, when we sighed for our more gentlemanlike occupation under Stuart. But with chains of masters, there is ever change of service. Already one paragraph, and another, as we learn afterwards from a gentleman at the Treasury, had begun to be marked at that office, with the view of its being submitted, at least to the attention of the proper law officers, when an unlucky or rather lucky epigram from our pen, aimed at Sir J. Blank S. M. Blank H., who was on the eve of departing for India to reap the fruits of his apostasy, as F. pronounced it, it is hardly worth particularizing, happening to offend a nice sense of Lord, or as he then delighted to be called, Citizen Stanhope, deprived us at once of the last hopes of a guinea from the last patron that had stuck by us, and breaking up our establishment, left us to the safe but somewhat mortifying neglect of the crown lawyers. It was about this time, or a little earlier, that Dan Stewart made that curious confession to us, that he had never deliberately walked into an exhibition at Somerset House in his life. End of section 46 Recording by Arden